Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether you're documenting a recent road trip or you're keeping track of your favorite restaurants or bars or sharing a list uh, of your city's essential parks or museums, Sweet Spot is built for you. You can use the app to follow friends, family, or your favorite musicians, writers, movie makers, you name it. When building your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram and Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps, and then you use tags and text to tell your story. From there, you share those curations on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google Plus, you name it. SweetSpot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. SweetSpot wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Oh, also, one more thing. It's free. You can download SweetSpot for iPhone right now over at the App Store free of charge. Go do that. It's an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is recorded in a room with off-white walls. This is how I communicate with people all over the world whom I cannot see. How are you today? It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, uh, back from vacation and uh, in the home office. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're out there enjoying yourselves. I hope you're, uh, you're not laboring. And if you are laboring, I hope you're not laboring too intensively. Uh, my guest today is Michael Earl Craig. He's one of my favorite contemporary poets. Uh, I've been trying to track him down and get him on the program for a while now, and uh, finally he is here, and I'm very pleased about this. His latest collection is called Talkativeness. It's available now from Wave Books. So uh, Earl and I, he, he goes by Earl, uh, we're going to be talking in just a minute. Uh, I do want to say a few words, however, uh, before, I, you know, before we get started with the main event, about uh, my trip, my vacation. I was in Colorado all last week. Uh, as many of you know, I lived there for about eight years, uh, back in the nineties or from 93 to uh, 2001. It's always nice to go back there. I have a lot of friends there sort of feels like, uh, you know, going home in a way. And, uh, my family and I, we were up in the mountains. We rented a little place. It was very beautiful. I did some hiking. 
I rode a bicycle. I breathed uh, clean air. I, I read some books. Or actually, I uh, I reread some books. I reread two books that I've already read on this trip. I do that sometimes. And when I go back to Colorado, I always think of Hunter Thompson. You know, and to my mind, he's sort of like the preeminent literary figure from uh, the Rocky Mountains. Being up there always reminds me of him. I'm a huge fan of his, uh, his work at his best. And uh, I think I might have mentioned this on the program before, but, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas um, and then his letters, which are pretty, you know, voluminous. He, he published two volumes of his letters like late in his life, but they span yeah, the entirety of his life, essentially. And the first two volumes are maybe, I don't know, I can't remember if there's three volumes or not, but the, the, the two that I've read uh, are just terrific and maybe my favorite thing that he ever wrote. And it gives you a really clear picture of how good his mind was at its best and how good of a guy he could be and just how funny and incisive. So, you know, I think he's one of the best comedic writers in American literary history. Uh, but whenever I read this book, it's called Gonzo, The Life of Hunter S. Thompson. And it's uh, edited by Jan Wenner, uh, the founder of Rolling Stone, and then Corey Seymour, who I, I believe is an editor at Rolling Stone. After uh, Thompson died... They uh, put out this oral history of his life where all these people who knew him uh, from his family to his friends, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, Johnny Depp, uh, Bob Brodus, the sheriff of Aspen, all these people who knew him in his life, they interviewed and then they stitched together this book called Gonzo. And uh, it's right up my alley because it, A, it's a literary biography, but it works in uh, collage and it gives you this really prismatic view of Hunter S. Thompson. And there's not, to my mind a better way to depict this guy than to have his, uh, have the people who knew him well talk about him and tell stories because the stories run the gamut. And whenever I read this book, I think I've probably read it now three or four times. I'm always confused as to how to feel when I put it down. You know, you sort of, uh, oscillate, you know, from everything from admiration to awe, to uh, horror, <laughs> to disgust, He's a complicated guy. So, and, and like truly a larger than life figure who really did live life on his own terms and, and not always uh, to good effect, especially for the people who were close to him and especially for the women. But, you know, there's something sort of awesome about it too. I don't know how to feel, but it's a great book. Even if you don't like his work, it's almost worth reading, I think. Just as like a kind of a, it reads to me like a mystery almost. Like, who was this guy? What was the, what's the rosebud, you know? And, it, you know, it should be said too, he really did destroy himself, you know, like with the drugs and alcohol. I don't like to gloss over that. I mean, that's who he was. That's the way he liked to live his life. But he was an addict and it destroyed him and it just, you know, it really hurt the people around him. And there were people around him who like just kissed his ass and enabled that. And that sucks to a degree. I don't know. You know, it's a confusing thing trying to, trying to know how to feel about all that. So I reread that. And then I reread, uh, the razor's edge by Somerset mom. And this is really strange because, uh, I, I just read something, but prior to the trip, I read, 
an, an essay about the novel because I believe this summer marks the 70th anniversary of the publication of The Razor's Edge. And uh, so I, I, I read that essay and then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember reading that. I think I want to read that again. And so I got the book and uh, I cracked it. And it was sort of like I forgot that I'd read it. And even more to the point, I forgot that it had been a huge book for me when I was in my early 20s. Like this book like completely left me thunderstruck when I was in my early 20s and it changed my life in a way. And yet I uh, now here I am in my late 30s and I completely forgot about it. Like I didn't have any mem- like memory of the plot really, though some of it did come back to me. It's just a it was a weird feeling. It was like oh my god, like this book really did set me on my course in some ways, or at least make me think about things that have preoccupied me for most of my adult life. And yet, I forgot I read it. I forgot all about it. It was like it was erased from my memory, or buried somewhere in there. Like my memory is terrible. I don't know if anybody else has ever had that experience. I mean, it's one thing to forget a book that like you didn't really love or, you know, oh yeah, I kind of read that for, you know, for class or something, but to forget a book that was like really pivotal and to have all this, like this rush of feelings come back to you as you remember, like, oh yeah, I was, you know, I was 22 and read this and, you know, it's not the same the second time around reading it, but uh, still, still good goes down easy. Larry Darrell. I like that, uh, that figure. And you know, the, the thing that really got me back to the book was that, you know, the person who wrote this essay, uh, defined the book or described the book as a bridge between lost generation literature and the beats, which I had never, uh, I'd never thought about that before, but it makes a lot of sense for those of you who are familiar with the razor's edge. You know, it's about this, uh, the, the central mysterious character is Larry Darrell you know, who the, whom, uh, the, the kind of the mom narrator is telling you about. And he is a world war, a young world war one vet who sort of like drops out and leads this bum's life with an inheritance, you know, because how else are you going to lead a bum's life? Like oh, traipsing all over the world, but he's got this small inheritance and he just decides not to do the conventional thing. And he just like bums around and goes on with like long walks across the countryside and like winds up in India and, you know, becomes essentially a saint. And, uh, I think that's fairly accurate. You know, it was like this lost generation, uh, devastation and sense of desolation and, uh, disillusionment, uh, you know, but then it was also sort of bridging that divide, uh, you know, on the way to, uh, the beat generation and experimenting with, uh, different spiritual paths and, you know, all that kind of stuff, trying to find some sort of meaning in the chaos. So uh, just weird. I mean, fascinating read. Uh, you know, going into it from that perspective and also fascinating to read it and remember that, uh, you know, it had totally blown my mind and yet I'd forgotten all about it. So, uh, what else? Oh, you know what? I I do have to tell you this because this I thought was fairly interesting and then we'll get going with the show. Um, you know, obviously you're on vacation, you're trying to rest, especially if you have a small child, you just sort of cross your fingers and hope that you're going to be able to catch up on some sleep. So my wife and I, being the uh, middle-aged people that we are, we would take melatonin at night to help us sleep. <laughs> and my wife, who I think has a very fragile neurochemistry, like just in the sense that like, she, you know, she's very chemically affected. 
uh, she had, she took melatonin and reported that she was having these crazy dreams. Often she was having crazy nightmares. And so, uh, one night, or, or it was actually early in the morning, pre-dawn, she wakes up and I'm up for some reason and we're in the darkness. And she says, I just had a terrible nightmare about an earthquake. And I was like, Oh shit, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't, you know, we didn't talk very much cause we were both half asleep, but she tells me this. And then a couple of hours later we get up. And I found myself uh, reading the news, and sure enough, there there was the big earthquake in San Francisco, uh, up in Napa Valley. So, a little odd that my wife had this nightmare about an earthquake, basically at the same time that the earthquake was happening. And uh, what's even weirder is that I had a, a weird earthquake prediction years ago, which I've talked about on this show, where I tweeted about how I smelled an earthquake, and then there was an earthquake like two hours later, right here in Los Angeles. So, anyway, just a little bit odd. And two days later, or three days later, shortly uh, before we uh, returned to California, you know, my wife wakes up and she tells me, I just had another horrible nightmare. And I dreamed that that we were involved in a plane crash. Uh, She's like, I was in the bathroom, the plane started going down, I wanted to get back to you guys, but I couldn't. So I was trying to email you to say goodbye. (laughs) It's like a horrible nightmare. And of course we had to fly home like two days later and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit of a nervous flyer. I'll always get on the plane. It's not like I won't fly, but, uh, you know, I'm a little nervous. And so my wife tells me this after she's dreamed about and accurately predicted an earthquake. She tells me that she's dreamed that we're going to be in a plane crash. So naturally we get on the plane and, uh, I say to her, okay, like we're going to get on, we're not going to let this rule us, but you can't go to the bathroom on this flight. Like you, you, I will, I will physically <laughs> block you from, uh, trying to, uh, go to the lavatory. It's not allowed because if she doesn't go to the, you know, if she doesn't go to the bathroom, then it can't happen because the dream requires her to go to the bathroom. So she didn't to her credit. I think she was sort of spooked too. And, uh, fortunately we made it home. I'm going to knock on wood right now for some reason. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, once again, is Michael Earl Craig. Uh, really great to have him here on the program. I enjoyed talking with him, and uh, I hope you guys have fun listening to this. So here he is. This is Michael Earl Craig, and his new collection, once again, is called talkativeness. I am in Montana. I'm in about 20 minutes outside of Livingston, Montana. And so it's very rural. I don't 
looking to the south, and I see just about really no houses. It's, so it's very rolling hills, mountains in the distance, and I'm in my living room. Okay, so I, I, I guess I kind of want to start with your biography uh, because to me, there's something sort of uh, mythical about you in my in my personal internet life. I think there are people out there in like uh, the literary world uh, who read you online or who you know read your books and then read your bio who are thinking like, what's he up to up in Montana? Because I remember when we published you on the Nervous Breakdown years ago. Uh, I read your poem. I was immediately struck by it. I was like, this is really great. And then I looked at the bio and it's like, you know, he's a certified journeyman farrier who shoes horses for a living up in Montana. (laughs) And I'm Mm -hmm. like, that's not what I usually read. Usually it's like, you know, they got their MFA here and here. They teach here. Uh, How did you get into shoeing horses? Well, I, um, I, let's see, all through my 20s when I was in undergrad which was in Missoula, Montana, and also graduate school. I would spend my summers working in the mountains or, you know, for outfitters and guest ranches, things like that, um, guiding rides, packing game out of the mountains during hunting camps sometimes, things like that. And I got exposed to shoeing just, just enough for emergencies and to kind of help the, the, whoever I was working for periodically, but um, but in 1997 I um, was still in graduate school at UMass and I had a summer break and I decided I'd ride a horse across the state of Montana, so I came out here and and did that. I had a couple months to ride as far as I could and I I did ride for two months and on that trip. I met, and and this will happen to you if you are going three miles an hour across a very large state on a horse, you will meet other horse people and among them veterinarians and farriers. And I'd never thought about um, that being a career, becoming a farrier, but I met probably seven or eight different professional horseshoers and and I only had one more year at UMass, so I went back and finished up that last year, and I had really been wondering what the what the hell I was going to do when I got when I finished that program, and I had just been exposed that summer before to all these professional farriers, and I thought, what the heck, I'll give this a try. So okay, so and you were educated uh, like in, in studying literature and poetry. Yes, but yeah, my I, undergraduate work was in Missoula at the University of Montana, and that was the uh, English department. My my major was English Lit, but I also fulfilled the whole all of the creative writing, just not accidentally, but just in addition. I I, t- I took uh, creative writing, poetry classes, and fiction the, that whole time, and then and then my graduate for graduate school I went. In um, 1995, to UMass, and it, upset it right in Amherst. Okay, and so and you and did you zero in on poetry for your MFA, or was it still fiction poetry yeah. hybrid? Yeah, it, I, it was pure straight straight. Uh, all of it was poetry, and really, that's what I did as an undergrad. I started out in the very beginning, um, interested in fiction and and also essay writing, but my um, Teachers kind of quickly 
pointed out that I didn't, I was never, I wasn't writing. I didn't know how to tell a story the way they, I didn't have, uh, I wasn't writing fiction. You're writing something more like poetry. And so pretty early on, my fiction writers pointed me down the hall, you know, to the poetry department. So that most of my undergrad was poetry as well. Okay. And so, and, but I mean, like in terms of finding your voice and, um, like figuring out that you were a poet, like were there, were there poets that like sparked you and you said, okay, this is what I want to do. Uh, or this is the, the you know, they're kind of doing something similar to what I'm trying to do. Mm. Or was it teachers that we, we did, you know, did the teachers who told you, you know, you're good at this, this is what you're doing. Was that the big influence? Well, that was just, uh, that, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. That was, I didn't take it. I wasn't offended. I understood what they meant. You know, I would, I would work all week, you know, all week or for however much time on the, my story and, and bring it in. And it would be, you know, a page and a half and other people would have 15 pages. And so I think, I think in what it was that they were noticing is everything was condensed and lots of things were stripped out and the story jumped i just remember this one teacher saying you know this page and a half really moves like it doesn't move like fix like fiction this isn't a successful story um so you know i do but it's funny because the first poet the first book of poetry that i ever remember buying was therefore uh raymond carver's aquamarine okay and that's because I loved, I just, I just was, had, had been reading all of his stories and I loved him and I, and, um, and then I was told, you know, you're kind of writing poetry. <laughs> so I looked around to see what some of these fiction writers, he comes to mind, um, at the top of that list who were also writing, uh, poetry. So I remember just pouring over Aquamarine and, and loving, he basically would, in, in a, in, 18, 20, 30 lines. He would, he would do everything for me that he that he did in some of his, you know, four or five page stories. That's interesting. So compression is big. I mean, obviously with with poetry, you're always trying to, you know, maximize impact word for word. But uh, you know, with you in terms of like, you know, narrative in particular, um, you know, narrative poems, even those that jump around and aren't necessarily linear. Um, you know, were you thinking explicitly compression, or was this just something that, like, intuitively you were doing? So, uh, not thinking at all. That's the thing. I don't. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about compression, and just like I don't think about narrative drive at all. But uh, but people are all, well, not, quite often they'll point out that I do that a lot in my poetry. There's, and so yeah. I mean, I I'm not. I'm not saying it's not there. I, I see that it is there, but yeah, I was, I was just sort of driven or moved toward that. You know, my favorite, my favorite, uh, things in, in those Raymond Carver stories would be those kind of weird details that just, he, that just were dangling and then he would move on and, and not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying he's the only writer, that, that I ever read that did that. But I just remember the, the stripped down quality of the stories was even more stripped down when I started to look at his poems. And then from there, I just kind of moved into, you know, all kinds of different 
poets. But he he was probably one of the very first books, or that book was that I ever got. Okay, so and then in terms of like your your, your education, um, you know, like coming out of high school. Like first of all, where, where are you from? Mm, I am from Dayton, Ohio. Okay, so Midwest. The Midwest, yeah. All right, so grew up in Ohio, um, and we, like literary leanings as a child. No, none. Not not at all. And my parents, um, we d- we weren't real at all book people. I mean, they yeah, they not, actually they didn't listen to um, music or read books or talk about books at, really at all. And so it's sort of strange. I don't really know what happened, but I but people often wonder that. My, my my parents are both still alive and everybody gets along. We hang out all the time. I just was with them about a week ago. And so it's so I, I say that with all you know, without any it's not like I'm but yeah, there was not a literary household at all. Siblings? Siblings. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Okay. And so, but like when, and then in high school, you weren't like on the school paper or like, you know, writing funny skits for your friends or something. Um, you know, I actually, I, I excelled, I always did well in my English classes and I, you know, I, I, I could blow off all my classes, which I did in, in high school and, um, and, but still get easy A's in the English classes, whereas I would blow off math and everything else and and get a D or an F. Um, but, yeah, so, I, you know, I wasn't writing for the, pap- for the paper, but I, I uh, or anything like that, but I definitely got into the writing assignments that English teachers would have us do. Okay. And then were they encouraging? Were they like, you know, you can do this or... Did you get yeah, it? yeah, I, I I think so. Yeah, I I had some really good teachers in high school, and um, although I don't remember reading any contemporary poetry, um, at all, and it it, it really um, yeah, in high school, later, in, in high school, it was like you read like The Raven, or you know, it was I, yeah, that was kind of my education as well. I don't yeah. think I don't remember reading or like what was the uh, Wordsworth poem or. Uh, what's the one, yeah. um, the the Night of the Ancient Mariner or whatever? Is that Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So yeah, yeah. That, that kind of stuff. Oh, you, we read all that, but the idea that there were people that were just maybe six or eight or ten years older than than me that were really seriously writing poems and publishing books, there was no, I had no concept at all, um, you know, that any of that was going on. Whereas now I'll vis- I visit periodically this high school in Livingston, and I'll be like kind of be jump in there and teach some poetry classes and things with them. And and that teacher, this friend of mine in Livingston, you know, he has them reading all kinds of really great contemporary stories and poetry. And I just think that it's very different from what I, my experience in high school. Yeah, well, so but it sounds it sounds like you had like a happy family and like a happy childhood. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> yes, like, pretty much. That can be that can be a detrimental to a poet's career. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I I kept I kept thinking, well, you know, at some point I I'm going to need to get some more chaos, <laughs> and uh, I need to stir things up. And but yeah, no, I, I get along with 
the entire family and uh and I don't even have any real problem with where I grew up. I mean, Ohio, Dayton, it's just, it's sort of strange. I'm glad you knew you mentioned that it's Midwestern. A lot of people when I say Ohio, they immediately think they say they'll say, you know, oh, the east. Well, it's, you know, it's not the east at all. No. Well, no, my sister went to UD. So I I've spent some time in Dayton and You've been there. And I'm from Indiana. So, like, I, you know, I grew up a stone's throw from where you, you were raised. Oh, yeah. So, you you know, UD was a probably a four-minute bike ride without even pedaling downhill to get right to the to the ghetto, the UD sure, yeah. ghetto. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I grew up right on Brown, the whole area of Brown Street. Um, and so, yeah, I don't even have a problem with, with that. I mean, I, I just think... Um, I don't know. Yeah, my childhood was. It's not like there were, were no nothing, no bad things that ever happened, but it wasn't uh, traumatic. I don't look. I don't. I don't really draw upon that any struggle in my writing like that. And so, and you say your parents weren't uh, literary or like into music or anything. Like, what did they? What did your like old man do? Like, what? Okay, my my dad was a uh, lung doctor, pulmonologist, pulmonary specialist. And um, his excuse for not really knowing who the Beatles were um, (laughs) was that he was just too busy and he's being totally serious. He's not being a a smartass or anything. My parents are just like, well, I think we we knew that we'd heard of the Beatles, okay? <laughs> but we, as far as, ah, you know, then there's a pause and they'll look at each other. Because I, I've had this conversation a number of years back where I, 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 I said, you know, do you remember any of that? Because when I grew up, I thought that's how everybody's parents were. And then I got a little older and I realized some of my friends had parents who had these killer album collections. Right, right. No, I'm, and, the, I'm the same way. My parents are exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah. And and I'd be I'd think, wait a minute, did you not I mean not a single album? Right. Nothing. My my dad had and I, I hope this doesn't sound God, he's got it he's gonna listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad did have Barbara Streisand on eight track. <laughs> my and he my mom, Did your dad have that? No, my mom's my mom's a big Streisand fan. My dad's into James Brown. Like that's the one. I mean, yeah. and like I, I say into him, and I mean like knew his songs and like would say he liked him. But like it's not like he had any albums, you know. But it was like right. the, the one thing I can remember musically, which is so at odds. Like if you met my dad, you wouldn't think James Brown. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, in fact, the Barbara Streisand was probably one of those greatest hits things that he you know got at the gas station or something like that i don't know but but it's um in books no 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 talk about politics at the dinner table um but also no arguing no throwing things around i mean it was just uh, it just was uh it just it it didn't occur to me that it was an unusual or household and maybe it's not that unusual until i i developed friends and then heard their stories and i'd think wow that's quite different <laughs> well you know but the thing is though i because i don't know where we, like i don't know where your folks are from originally but like my parents are from the south and you know they came of age in the 60s and you know went to college in the 60s and the early you know i guess yeah it would have been the 1960s and 
uh, but they were down at LSU in Louisiana, and like that part of the country didn't get the same '60s that the coasts got, you know. And so, yeah. I think that the popular culture that emerged out of that time and that really disseminated in the later years and into the '70s, you know, we then ingested that um, in our childhoods, and it's just assumed that like back in those days, everybody was on that same page, but it it really wasn't the case. Right, and that's a good point because my parents are both from. Ohio. My dad's from a small town, Xenia, and my mom is from Dayton. And so, and also they were born in the mid thirties. So they, they were, he was, my parents were kind of getting, trying to get through medical school and in their, in their twenties and late twenties. And, and so they probably were that, you know, uh, just not, they weren't partying and they weren't, uh, they just missed that. I think maybe if they would have just been a little bit uh, farther born in like the, around 1940 even or the early 40s that they right. probably would have been more in the middle of all that. But they 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 weren't. And so the, the house, um, but, the, but it's so strange because I love uh, music, books, film. I mean, I just, I don't know where it, really it came from, but I just... And my, my my mom has more than once. She just says, I don't know where that all comes from. <laughs> you don't have any kind of like relative, like you don't have like a crazy uncle or something where you're like, okay, that's that's me. Well, yeah. Actually, my mom's brother, um, he he just passed away about a, oh, in March this year. But he, um, he was an English teacher. He taught high school English. And, and uh, he was always... That's where somewhere on that side of the I don't know, but he he is definitely one one place to point where he uh, yeah, he was always reading and listening to stuff. Not necessarily pop and rock. He was into really into classical music, but yes, something going on there for sure. Okay, and then so then you go to Missoula. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, that was. Um, me trying when I left high school, I I spent two years at Ohio Wesleyan and right out about a forty minutes out of Columbus in a town called Delaware, and I just hated that. I mean, the, but um, but it was two full years, and I I wanted to leave Ohio. The school was fine in hindsight; it's probably good for me, but. I just desperately wanted to get out of Ohio, and so I took a summer job in Colorado washing dishes at a dude ranch and went out with a bicycle and some books, and um, while I was there, I'll try, to, I'll try to make this a little shorter story. This one of, the, one of the wranglers, I think it was, somebody I worked with, you know, on all my days off, I would just sort of sit, sit around and read and write letters to friends and they, everyone thought that was strange we're just totally <laughs> what, what are you doing um what, what's with all these books you have a milk crate of books and you pack it around what's your problem so it became apparent that, that i was looking to transfer into an english department out west and one of these employees said you really should go check out missoula missoula is a very cool town i think she was from somewhere up in montana and she just suggested I go look at it, and I did. And I just transferred. I, I, I lost a lot of ground academic credits, so I ended up spending four 
three, four years finishing up in Missoula. But that's how I landed in Missoula was just a dishwashing job in Colorado. Where I, I went to Boulder. Where uh, where in Colorado was this dude ranch? Okay, this was outside of a town called Granby. I don't know it. And it's also not too far from Grand Lake. But it's, I'm trying to think, um, uh, and it might have maybe about an hour and a half or two hours from, like, Boulder. Okay, okay. But I don't, I don't really, I haven't been through that area in a, since then. That would have been, like, 89 or 90. And then you went up to Missoula and you were sold. Oh, immediately. I just, I just, uh, I've never seen a town like Missoula. And Missoula, I mean, I, I looked at, at Boulder, I looked at that school in Eugene, Oregon. I looked at Reed. No, was it Reed? Yeah, College. Up, in, up in Portland or whatever. And yep, and Evergreen, and and um, Olympia. I looked at a bunch of schools on a road trip that fall, and with my with the person I was dating, we were driving her mom's car, and we argued the whole time. And when we got to Spokane, Spokane, she. Um, new friends there and she said look you gotta just go see missoula on your own take my mom's car i'm gonna hang out here with my friends (laughs) so i rolled into missoula just at like three four in the afternoon in my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend's mom's car and just flipped i mean it was such a cool town it was like rough but also had all this um literary i mean i i saw a poetry and fiction reading that first night in town and i saw a knife fight in connie's bar all (laughs) all within i'm serious within like a two three hour period i saw some fiction some poetry and some knife fighting and it was just i sold immediately i knew i was transferring i remember calling my parents and saying this is where i'm going to be and what did they, what did yeah what did they say? <laughs> oh, they well they wanted me to finish Ohio at Ohio Wesleyan. Their their plan was always look, you had crappy grades in high school. Now you're doing well at Ohio Wesleyan, so don't ruin it. You know, and I I understand, but so they really wanted me to um to to do that. But then when they realized I wasn't listening, I mean I was going to Missoula. They got completely behind it and uh you know it was they 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 ended up loving missoula but at first i remember them thinking don't don't rock the boat you know yeah right you you got you got grades at a wesleyan and it doesn't sound like your parents were like pushing you to like follow in the family business and become a doctor or anything like that no No, not not at all i think it was just the knife fight thing that they're they're like (laughs) wait a minute (laughs) don't rock the boat you you know you were doing so well until you mentioned the knife fight (laughs) but um no they never never did they ever talk i mean not even not at all that was i pressured to go into medicine and and so all these decisions i made were just supported which I also didn't realize how nice, how good that was until later. But yeah, they were, they they thought the poetry was a good idea, and and then when I it, it, the shoeing took a little bit of adjustment at first. They were they really were they really were surprised when I was you, you, still not finished. I was going to yeah. say you really threw your parents a couple of curveballs. Like first you're like I'm going to go into poetry, 
and I'm going to support it by shooing horses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, great, we've heard of that before. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, you go through, you get your English degree, um, you know, at Missoula. I'm assuming it, like it went, it continued to go well. Like you were, you were happy there. You were doing well in school. Like nothing changed from Wesleyan. You didn't suddenly go wild in Missoula, did you? Oh no, I, I was, I didn't, I never, no, no, nothing happened. I just did exactly the same thing, which was just kept. Although, although it was around that time where I started to really focus on poetry at Ohio Wesleyan, I was still, you know, really interested in nonfiction essay and, and some and fiction fiction writers. So that did happen, but in terms of going wild, no, I, it was really wasn't any different. Okay, and then like, did you have a like this whole like adventure out west where you're on the dude ranch and then you're driving around with your uh, girlfriend at the time and checking out Missoula? Like, did you have a Kerouac influence or anything that was driving you? No, no, I didn't. And and um, oh well, you know, the somebody that I read a, a lot of at Ohio Wesleyan. I never read any Kerouac, and I still haven't, which I'm sort of embarrassed to say, but I never, I had not. So it wasn't Kerouac, but at Ohio Wesleyan, I read a bunch of Edward Abbey. Yeah. And so Edward Abbey, and he actually led to other people that were less interesting, but I felt obligated to read. Um, and that, But I mean, Edward Abbey was really got me thinking, of, That's probably, he's probably one of the reasons why I was so curious about the West, and he seemed to be this academic. He he was a teacher, but he would go do these fire lookout jobs and then bitch about academia. And I thought that was sort of funny and interesting. Yeah. And uh, and so Abby was was what was the closest thing. You know, people when people yeah to like uh, but no and I, I, no Kerouac I, that would have probably been useful. No, but I mean, you know, same thing. Edward Abbey, Jack Kerouac, either one's going to drive you west. I was just, I think I was just fishing to see if there was like something literary that had sparked your imagination because I feel like, you know, it's it's different for different people. I think where you go to school somehow matters or or sometimes it's a family thing. But, um, you know, I, I feel like people tend to either go east or west. I remember graduating from Boulder and a lot of people went to San Francisco and I knew people who went to different schools, and like th- those schools, everybody jumped to New York. And do you know what I'm talking about? Like certain schools yeah. seem to spit people out into certain cities. And for me, right. you know, for me growing up in the Midwest, like I, I never was like I got to get to the East Coast. I was always like I want to go west and like hang out in mountains in the desert and see, right. see things where it's like wide open. You know, that was always my lean. Yeah, and and um, but it's a but it's a. I don't know that were you thinking that or just sort of hey I've I've got to do something this summer I'm going to do this. Well, I think I think I mean the decision to go to Colorado was really whimsical like I just thought the pictures looked pretty. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. it was really that, you know, basic in terms of uh how I how I landed on it, but you know, you get to be 18 years old and you've you know grown up in the same place or the same you know general like milieu and you, you know at, at a certain point you just you know if you're if you're wired a certain way you're going to get the itch to go see something else and i like to tra- right. i like to travel and you know i'm glad i i'm glad i did it uh it was kind of it was kind of a last minute decision i was supposed to go to indiana university and then change my mind at the last minute mm-hmm. so and then wound, yeah. up, wound up loving it yeah that's um the midwest is 
when you said you're from Indiana, I mean that uh, the Midwest is very is so distinct, and I then when I meet people from there, I usually I can just call it, or I'll, I'll send something, and then later they'll say, well, I'm from I'm from Cleveland, or I'm from Indianapolis, or I'm you know, and it's it is it's very I've I've always felt when you when you grew up in the Midwest or let's like in Dayton. You are. You're perfect. You're primed to do either one of those things, to go to, to Chicago. A lot of people would go to Chicago yep. or New York even, or you could go to and embark on some country, western lifestyle, whereas friends of mine who are from San Francisco, born and raised there, it seems like most of the time they, they're good traveling traveling here, but they, they don't... Uh, want to you know they don't they don't want to live they don't want to live in livingston you know they it's a place to visit but i don't know i don't know if it just seems like the midwest there's enough blankness that you could plug yourself into almost any place yeah that's a that's kind of a good way to think of it because um i feel like people like you know i went to colorado and i remember meeting kids at college who were from there and they were like happy to stay like they you know i, I sure certainly there were some kids who got out but there were a yeah. lot of people who were like, "Why would we leave? Like we, you know, we grew up right. ski- we grew up skiing on the weekends. It's always sunny. It's gorgeous. There's like, yeah. ma- I'm, and I'm I, how could I argue with that? But then, yeah, same thing yeah. with California, you know, San Francisco, up and down the coast of California. Like you grow up with that, and like you've got all sorts of different things to do. And you know, I feel like those sorts of places keep their people more. And I feel like the Midwest. Like I look back on my high school friends, and uh, pretty much all of us left. Like there, I mean, there's, there's some people back in my hometown, but my close friends, like we all left. Mm -hmm. So, so, okay. So, uh, you, you go on to UMass to get your MFA. Uh, I imagine like when you, did you do that straight out of undergrad or did you take some time in between? I took not very much time. I think I took about maybe a year and I skipped, I didn't apply that, that, you know, for that next year, I took one year off. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and and during that year, just like what, working odd jobs and. Yeah, during that year, I kind of the same thing. I spent another summer in Wyoming in the mountains and did and uh, and I remember not really wanting to. Um, I, I I wasn't really even sure I wanted to to go to graduate school, but but I. So a couple of my friends applied while they were still in Missoula and took off. One of them went to the uh, program at at Michigan and another one at Iowa. And so part of it might have been me corresponding with them that first year and and and, and warming up to the idea. But I so yeah, I basically took one year off and just did what I always was had been doing, which was yeah, running around doing horse horse uh, related stuff. Like do you do you did you always love horses? Like, or as soon as you got out to Missoula, did you find yourself thinking like, I want to ride a horse? Or, <laughs> you know? What well, I'm yeah, we didn't. I, I didn't grow up around horses, and that dishwashing job was, you know, those jobs like I took a couple like that, that one, and then one the next year in Montana, and both of those jobs kind of put me in that scene, and it just started to gradually build and pickup so so yeah it was it was it was not it was it clearly wasn't on my radar when i was in high school or or even um at ohio wesleyan at all so I, it's funny i don't 
I, I think um, I think that it's. I've always thought it's interesting all the different directions you could take with your life, and you you can only do a few things. And so I don't really know how I got, because like I said, I mean, I, a lot of horseshoers I know, they just grew up around horses and parents who are always working with horses. And and so I, I'm not really sure how I got into it. Wow. Okay. So yeah. um, why UMass? That's just where you got in or did you, did you? No, UMass, well, UMass, um, Dara Wire was a visiting teacher in Missoula and I was, at that point, I was not, I was just fried, done with the creative writing scene, and she really was great because she kept after me, and I remember one day in particular outside of this English building, the department building, she she said, you know, well, she just treated me, talked to me as if I was wrong about giving up. And she knew that I was wrong, but so she basically said, "Well, when you're when you're ready, when you're when you're done saying you're done, then then you, you know come out, come check out UMass because, you know, she just said it's a great place. She mentioned all these surrounding schools with great bookstores and libraries and access to New York and Boston, but you could be sort of in a rural." towns all around Amherst. So she really just um, treated me like I was um, going to come around and gave me an invitation to come check it out. And so it was at the top of my list, actually, UMass, especially after I went and visited. What what a great place. Everything she had said about that whole area. I'd never been east at all. Um, no, I'd been to New York when I was a kid with my parents, but I'd never been really seen anything beyond that. And I, lo- I kind of fell in love with it. I, it was a great um, part of the country to spend a handful of years, for sure. And you got in, you know, obviously your education became more concentrated. You started to really focus in on your own writing. Um, you know, I've talked to people on this show, and I've heard both both things. You know, some people had the great MFA experience, other people not so much. Other people, you know, decided to forego it entirely based on some sort of, uh, you know, it's either financial or they're just like on principle. They don't think it's worth it. But it sounds like for you, it was good. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was. It was great. I mean, it's a three-year program, so they have a few more uh, literature lit classes that they throw at you, and um, very low pressure. My friend who was at Iowa. You know, I visited him there, and it and I it just that that it, that seemed like a very intense kind of a oh, what's the word? Um, competitive. Yes, competitive. That's a <laughs> competitive <laughs> environment, and you know, UMass was very laid back, but also you could be as serious there as you wanted to be. And I met some great friends, had some really good teachers, and was able, like Dara had said, I, I ended up living on this lady's farm. I paid $75 a month and did, and then all, and did some chores on her farm. And But I could be in Amherst or Northampton in about 10 to, tw- 10 to 15 minutes, depending which direction I was going. So it, it was great. I mean, uh, I loved it. 
and um and I also feel like it just helped me to cover ground that would have taken me, you know, 10 years to do if I would have ever even done it. Well, you mean like just doing the reading and then just practicing the writing? And... Yeah. Yeah, just having not really nothing else to do except, you know, you get up and drink some coffee and read for a while and take a nap and then go to a class and come back and try writing some poems and then go out for some drinks with your friends <laughs> it was it's in hindsight it was it sounds i mean it, they're just um i mean yeah i'm sort of making light of it but but there were days that were exactly like that and sure. lots of um uh great readings being exposed to visiting writers and and bookstores and and also other writers who were were from very urban areas or from other parts of the country and you get to check your ideas um, against them. And so at the end of a year or two years and then three years, you've, you've just been rubbing shoulders with all these different people. And that's especially where I'm living right now. That's not that there's none of that. I mean, I, I'm looking to the North for a hundred miles and I'd see like five houses here and there. And, and there, and there just aren't, there aren't any poets up there, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, Livingston, like I, I've never been. What's Livingston like? I don't even know how big it is. It's uh, about 7,200 people, and it sits right on the Yellowstone River. So there's quite a there, – there's a tourism industry, mainly centered around fishing, fly fishing. But but it's, it's, not, um, it's not like a Jackson Hole – Wyoming type of a town and had you know it's, it's a it's a little bigger grittier a little more I guess reality than some of these some of the towns that are really heavily dependent on tourism yeah I've been to Jackson Hole and it almost felt like a I mean it's beautiful and it was really fun but I just I felt like god it's like almost like a museum to the west or something I don't know yeah. how to, it's like a little kitschy or something I don't know how to put it but that's, uh, that's a good way to put that's true that's there are a lot of a lot of towns that feel like that. Livingston does not, I don't think, at all feel like that. Is it mountainous? I mean, or or is this like you said, rolling hills? I mean, this is because Jackson Hole. You've got the Tetons, and it's like really dramatic. But is is the are the mountains you know near Livingston that big? Or yeah, we... yeah, they're they're okay. So Jack, Jackson is is dramatic. The Tetons seem like they're very close. Um, I'm looking to the south at the Absorica Range, and then when I step over here, my house is really skinny, very narrow. I can look to the north at the Crazy Mountains, look to the west at the Bridgers. So there, there are mount, it's mountainous, but but there's more space and you know rolling kind of thing. So it's it's not that feeling when you're when you're in Telluride, Colorado, for example. You feel like you are in a box canyon. Right. Um, so it's not like that at all. It's uh, much more open. However, I mean, I the, the mountains are sizable, and so there's a you know there's skiing and fishing and horseback things. So there there is tourism, but there also are people that are just living regular lives. Livingston has a lot of artists, painters, writers, some documentary film type people and things going on. And so for being a small town, Livingston has this reputation 
of having a very high number of kind of, I don't know, creative artist types. And I think that it does. I think, as you know, some I hear sometimes people argue that, but really they're just arguing because when you look at other towns in Montana, there are... There's a, there are a lot of things like that going on here. So it's not a complete, um, you know, absence. Earlier I made it sound like there just is nothing. Um, it's, not, it's not quite like that. But poetry is, is where, you know, there, there, there's less in the, the way of poetry. There's a lot of, fic, you know, fiction writers and things like that. But so, it's a cool town. And, okay, and so like with you living there and being drawn out there earlier in your life, like did you get into mountaineering and skiing and all that? No, not really. Um, I did a lot of skiing when I was younger. Now, since I've moved back here, I've been back here for about 14 years um, after UMass, uh, or after horseshoeing school, I guess. Um, so no, not really mountaineering and I, I, I really um, wish I I would love to, to spend more time on the river. I'm kind of trying to get a lot of my friends fish, and I never have done it. And well, I, I have, but I, but it, I could count how many times I've been fly fishing on probably one or two hands. And so, fly fishing I think is something that could kind of be fun, but yeah, I don't do a lot of that type of stuff really. That's interesting. And it's interesting. And I'm thinking, too, I, I, I have to ask because I know my listeners are probably going to want to know more about it. But you mentioned, you know, like, I guess, was, was this in between years at, at UMass? You went back to Montana and, and rode a horse across the state for the summer? Mm-hmm. So you're just, you weren't fishing for food. I mean, you're, it's like, a, you know, it's obviously a pack animal. You could put some stuff on it. So you're just loading it up with food and stuff and then camping in a tent? Well, uh, you know, I started with a tent and then realized I wasn't really using it. I slept out most, I mean, the whole time. I didn't, I got rid of the tent right away. It was just dead weight and I didn't really want to be in it and I couldn't see through it, which is, I had to, I had to keep my eye on, on my, uh, these two animals that I, one I was riding and the other one I was packing. So, but here's the deal with that trip is I, 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 in the beginning, I thought it was going to be cross-country and, and sort of the Jeremiah Johnson mountain man type thing. And, um, but I quickly learned that Montana, just like almost every other state, is uh, private property with fencing. And, and so the trip that I thought was going to be this, you know, pick a draw a straight line right across the state. No, <laughs> right. I, I ended up riding ditches. No, no interstates, but a lot of highway ditches. And it's still super rural, by the way. I mean, you know, you could see, you'd see uh, all kinds of antelope and deer and elk and things depending from the highway ditches, but it's, but it was, um, so yeah, no fishing. I, I mean, I, I could have stopped, but I was just plugging along, trying to trying to get 18 to 20 miles under my belt before uh, nightfall, and so yeah. No. So where, and did like did you have any kind of like trail? Like there's did you did anyone do this before you, and were you following in their footsteps, or did you literally just get a horse and say, you know, head west or head east? Or it was the Chisholm Trail. Okay. No, no, it wasn't the. Oh. It, no, I just I basically my goal was to go from okay if you the the the, the south 
eastern corner is a town called Alzada, right in that corner. The, go- the goal is to go from Alzada at a diagonal to the northwestern corner, which is Yak Valley. And those are the two most most distant from each other towns, Alzada and, and Yak. So that was that was the plan, and I and I ran out of time. I mean, I got I got uh, over the Continental Divide. I was up in the Bob Marshall, but I just couldn't. I would have needed another probably another month to get up into that corner. So I, that was my goal. So rather than dawdle, it would have been fun to dawdle, fish a bit, and just kind of slow down. Not that you can go too much slower than than two to three miles an hour, but. But the goal was to try to get across this whole the whole state, and so that's partly why I just ate a lot of corn cold right out of a can in the saddle, and uh, just <laughs> ate like ramen noodles yeah. and stuff. I mean, it was not very romantic. It's not the romantic journey that a lot of people at first, you know, initially think. Yeah. Any kind of journey like that, it seems like even to you, it probably seemed a lot more romantic until you like were sleeping in a ditch or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Sleeping (laughs) under a tarp in, in like a parking lot outside of a bar. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to ask you too, like, cause like obviously the weather in the mountains in the summer can be great, but, uh, you must've hit some inclement weather. Like, did you, you just slept under a tarp? Yeah, when it would, um, or people would pull up, they would literally just drive on the highway, just drive, right, pull over, car wheels crunching in the gravel, get out, introduce themselves, and tell me where they lived, you know, and say, why don't you just stay, we have a horse pasture, we have a barn. So a lot of times I would get lucky, and they'd say, yeah, we're just four miles up on the left, and I would, and so I stayed in sheep sheds and different agri, you know, agricultural buildings and, um, <laughs> silos. But some, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes, like you said, I'd, it'd be a, a, a thunder and lightning and rainstorm and I would be nowhere near any, any friendly people. And, uh, I, I remember the, the, the worst night was I was in the parking lot of this bar. It was pouring rain and it was, dark when I got into town and I just rolled I there was an extension ladder in the in the parking lot and I dragged I rolled myself up with it to keep the tarp off of my face and body I sort of like lay, laid down next to it and flipped it up over and just got rained you know, just got soaked and um so there's you know stuff like that and then everything else but it was not that you know beautiful cross country uh with western meadowlarks singing in the <laughs> like billy in like, the grass like billy around like, me like billy crystal and city slickers or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um and you know you t- you took the horses up at altitude i mean I, I this shows how much i know but i mean if you're crossing the continental divide you you took the horse you were riding and a pack horse like up over okay now that by the time i got over to augusta um which is where you would get into the real the divide in the mount the, that part. That that's interesting. That that was a I had an opportunity to join in with this outfitter that I had worked for earlier, like in '94, I think. So at that point, I blended in with this group and kind of worked, helped him a little bit, and with his group, and 
that's how I got up over the uh, divide because I otherwise that would have been that would have been a little more. I would just needed needed more cook equipment and everything like that. But yes, that was that was uh, that was how I was able to to swing that with very little effort. I didn't have to to add any equipment or anything. Um, and this was all before, for me anyway, I didn't have a cell phone, um, 97, I didn't have a cell phone, I had a phone card and there were still, uh, you know, pay phones here and there around that you could, uh, make calls on. So, but it was, it's so different now. I just look back on that and think how not very long ago you, you would just go out and have no contact, no, no computer. I didn't have a own a computer at the time but I yeah I, re- I read in an interview that you were doing online that you didn't get your first computer until 2005 that is true yeah that seems uh that seems interesting and unusual yeah that's the absolute that is true and um my really my brother and sister and parents and everybody just sort of um forced it on us and it was a good it was it was great i mean in the hindsight but I mean, yeah, we we had no real intention of doing who's, that. Whose ways? You and your my wife okay. Susan. Yeah, we she she still since since '05. I have fully moved into the world. I mean, whereas um, you know, I think if I just said, "Hey, let's throw this thing out tomorrow," she probably would be like, "Okay, that sounds good." Right. <laughs> well, that's but, un- um, that's unusual. I mean, it's it's. I mean, there's a part of me that really envies that, you know, like not being like fully wired and having exposure to nature. I- I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, so you know we have our yeah. na- we have our nature, but it's not the same. Uh, yeah. You know, do you ever get a longing for the city? Do you ever say to yourself, like, you know, uh, I'd I'd love to go live somewhere crowded and polluted? <laughs> yeah. Um, when I travel. I always do. I mean, especially I love San Francisco. I love visiting New York. We were in um, Madrid a couple, about a year and a half ago, and and uh, I I am one of those people that, like I was saying I think earlier, I think there's you can only do so many things and live, you know, really drop anchor in a few places. But I feel like I could easily there, when I'm when I'm visiting friends and in New York or Brooklyn or San Francisco and different cities often think that like, God, I could, I could. Um, I still do think about leaving, but it's so much work. And, and then what I have, what's going on here, I love. And so it's like, I, I mean, but if, but if someone said, no, you must leave, I'd be able to, I, I don't know that I'd live in Indianapolis, but <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> but uh, or, or you know, but I, I could see living in a city for sure. And then what about um, you know, like I guess I got the, I want to get back to horses a little bit and this, the actual shoeing of horses because this is something we've talked about. But uh, I think for most of my listeners, um, you know, the, that is some, that whole process is something that's foreign to them. So, and, and like, I think the, for me, it was like, oh my God, they pay people to do that. I didn't even know it was a job. I thought like you got a horse and like, you just had to, it either came with shoes <laughs> or, like, yeah. you know, but somebody's actually got to physically shoe the horse 
And then I'm thinking about horse whispering, and I'm thinking about how you must you must be good with animals because I mean if you're if you're messing with a horse and it gets upset, it could kick you, right? Or yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, so take me take us through briefly like the process of shoeing a horse. Well, it it depends on who you are and how many steps you have into a job, but um. For me, it takes me about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes to put four shoes on a horse. And the horse's hoof is always growing like our fingernail or like our hair. And so these animals need to be done ideally every six to eight weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's say like, let's say you, Brad Listy, you own three horses you're going to see me every six to eight weeks. I'll pull into your driveway. This morning, I pulled into the guy's drive, driveway, ranch yard. There are four horses tied to the fence in the wet grass, which is, so that's the other thing. Sometimes you get to work indoors, but most of the time you are not indoors. So I'm in this barnyard, and I've got about four and a half, four, four to five hours worth of work on, you know, an hour or so on each horse. And then he's, that guy's going to see me again. And I have him booked for, I guess it's the end of September or October 2nd, I think is the return date. So he'll see me again in a couple months. That's the biggest news I think to people is they, they're like, wait, wait a minute, what you have to do to keep doing this, but it's just like a haircut or cutting your fingernails. It's always growing. And yet horses have to stand on, their feet and so the the hoof grows away from the bone and then it changes all the angles and all the uh, pressure on soft tissue and bone and ligaments and everything and so it it's important it's not that it needs to be done so do you, would you like you like they have just different size horseshoes you measure their hoofs just like a person going into the shoe store and well it's actually what it is I have a portable forge and an anvil so, yes, you, you trim the foot, take a few measurements, decide roughly what size the shoe is going to be, and then you can either hand make the shoe. Most people don't. I know, I, I know how to hand make shoes, but what I do 95% of the time is they have these shoes that are roughed out. They're called keg shoes, and they're, they're just pre-made. But you throw them in the forge, which is about the size of a large, or like a microwave maybe, and um, they get very hot and malleable, and you micro-fit them for that individual horse's foot. So very carefully, when I say micro-fit, very carefully fit. So there's a lot of anvil work, measuring feet, and then you're trying. So the, the shoes that end up on Smokey, they look completely different than the shoes that end up on peaches or camo or brook um so yeah that so that's what makes it so fascinating to me anyway is you're not just installing these things you're it's it's um very organic you you're 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 trimming the foot and then making a mental note you're kind of memorizing different curves and then you go back over to the anvil and you're duplicating it with a piece of steel and then hot fitting 
happens where you bring that still hot shoe over and you kind of smoke it on and that that's your that's how you're checking your fit and your level and everything well it, and, so, and it doesn't burn the horse because the hoof is made of whatever so thick. yeah yeah it's it, imagine if your fingernail was just so thick and beefy that that you could put it on the 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 stove top for a little while yeah. before you'd feel it. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Otherwise, it's it's so it's a, it's a, it's the same type of a thing as your fingernail. It's just much much bigger. And and then you you nail them onto the horse. Yes, you're nailing them on. And so again, looking at your own fingernail, if you if you're you're basically putting nails up the up the nail. And the nails have these very small bevels on the end so that as you strike the nail head, the nail moves in a very slight arc through the hoof wall, and that's what encourages them to come out the side of the hoof wall. So so if you turn the nail around, for example, that drives the nail into sensitive tissue, and that's, that's the wrong way to do it. Um, that's when the horses will freak out. That's when they'll like pull, flip over, and and shriek, and there might be some blood dripping on the mat. Um, so it's that's the other thing too is you can easily you easily um, screw with a, a horse and lame make them lame immediately. I mean it, it doesn't take much. So so that's the other thing. You're not just installing these things like a brute. It is kind of brute labor, but it's like brute labor with with a little bit of um, art, kind of spatial, you know, you get really good with with um, spatial relationships, and 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 um, it, so it's like it's, it doesn't get boring. I mean, it, it's uh, I've had people say, "God, how, how can you do that? It just um, it just seems like monotonous, doesn't it? Get old." But it, it never, it doesn't ever, I mean, so far, I mean, it's just, it's kind of fascinating because you're always, you're doing like four or five things at once. And then you, and, and the horses, I mean, I like animals, like you got to love the animals too, right? Yes. I mean, I think so. It, I mean, it, it definitely helps. I, I, um. Like, can you break a horse? Like if, if there's like a, are you like a horse whisperer? <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't have a, ba- a real background in that. However, if you do this long enough, you definitely develop, like, I don't know, maybe not all the skills you'd need to break a horse, but, I mean, you, you, if, you, if you do this and you're not getting hurt a lot and time passes and, you, you, you know, you're making a living shoeing, then you just don't run into a lot of people who are, just can't read horses at all. Right. I mean, but, but in terms of, of a horse whisperer, you know, I mean, it's it's funny because some horses you get after them a little, and they will, they're they're like, oh yeah, you want to, you know, they'll they'll t- they'll meet you. They, you want to fight, and then they'll you you bring the fight on a little bit, and they you have a real fight. And then other horses are just monkeying with you, and you, you and the best thing you could do is you know, give them a little discipline, and they respond. They're just like kids, basically. They they'll test you, test you. And if you don't do anything and you're a pushover, then they will um, make your life miserable or knock you over or, or keep, you know. So it's what, what's interesting about shoeing horses is what works for one horse might not work at all for the next one. And so you have to understand that. You can't just be blithely, you know. 
you you know the phrase being in the moment well when i started shoeing horses that's the thing that i remember the most is how four or five hours would pass and i would I, and i would later i would, it was like i was in a trance or something you're so you you have to be so focused that it was unlike anything i had done prior to that where it just demanded so much you can't just you know check out i mean it's gotten a little bit easier i think i i do check out now more but in the beginning you just hours pass and you think wow god i can't believe it, it sounds like, like it's I, like surgery it 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 kind of it kind of is i mean people i'm not people think i'm uh exaggerating but it's a lot like being it's it's a lot like um being a dentist because you're dealing with you know my, no two mouths or molars or it's never the same. There's you have to understand anatomy, physiology, blood supply, and then with you know with horses it's it's uh, breeds and gaits and lamenesses and so it's it's you know when people say God don't you get bored? But what they do for a living is grade freshman comp papers. I just have to laugh because <laughs> I mean it's the I think it's the other way around. I mean. Shoeing, shoeing horses, is, and then you throw the weather in, and you could be um, getting poured on or, or, or wearing cleats and standing in an icy driveway, or you could be in a beautiful, fancy barn working on horses that cost more than the house that you live in. And, and, and these, some of these animals have health packages that are, you know, that, you, that I would love to have. You know, they have maybe not... Uh, I, but dental, you know, these, these horses are, they're just expensive and, sure. and, and people have so much money dumped into them and you, you're working on a horse like that one day and then you're on your knees trimming a feral donkey in the mud the next day <laughs> or maybe later on that hey, same day. They all need shoes. They all, they all need at least trimming. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, not all of them need shoes. Yeah, why, wait, wait, why do horses need shoes? <laughs> okay, so we've domesticated the animal, and we've, we've at, we now ask them to do all kinds of things that are so far outside of natural. So, um, so yeah, the main reason is when wear exceeds growth, then you have soreness. So it's just like if you were to be digging in the garden with your bare hands and your fingernails got to be too short, if you might stop and think, God, if I could just have a sliver of steel to protect the ends of my fingernails, then I would be okay. That's what we're doing for horses. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're protecting sense. their feet. But then also there's crooked horses that would just have been eaten by coyotes and wolves, you know, 100, year, 100 200 years ago on the open plains. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be food for somebody else. Well, now they have a name. Now we call, we call that crooked horse... Um, you know, Brooke or, or, or Billy, Billy Bob, I'm just thinking of Peaches, these horses I've recently worked on, and, they, um, and we love them, and, and so we're, we're going fight, to fight for their, their lives by hiring vets and farriers to basically pamper them and try to get them along. So, and, and like, if you don't mind me asking, like, how much does it cost to get a, a horseshoe these days? Like, what do you, you like, well, if, I, if I have a horse and I'm like, uh, you know, Earl, I need you to put some shoes on this thing 
What is yeah. that? How does that so work? So for me, for here, I charge one fifteen, one hundred and fifteen dollars. So and, and if you're and like, is it it's seasonal work? Like, it means you got to imagine in the winter you're not shoeing as much. Yeah, not as much. But this is a thing that you could move to. Like, if I lived in Boulder or Fort Collins area, I have friends that they really don't experience much because of a drop because there are all these indoor facilities. And so for me to live here, my my life is much more seasonal, but it doesn't need to be. Like, for instance, San Francisco, right outside of Seattle, right almost outside of almost any city, Chicago, there are farriers at work all year round, and they make more money than 115 you know, typically when you're in areas like that. So it depends on where you are. Even here, you know, the you could get someone a bet to shoe your horse for 65 bucks. Um, so, so it sort of uh, depends on the, you know, the the person's training and what their business is like. But, but you know, so the money is the money is sounds really good to people at first. Like, oh, you just went out and you did these six horses and and you know you got 700 bucks or something like that but there's quite a there's quite a um bit of overhead and and so it you know it looks much better on paper self you're you're self-employed i mean self-employment is is uh it's not like going and punching the clock at kenyan noble or something and it's quite different than you know than that. But so, and then how about like in, you know in terms of finding time to write? Like, how do you do your uh, your poems? Well, good question. The sum the summer, I'm just I don't do a lot. I mean, I do some little little bits, little, little some reading. But when the fall rolls around, this is partly why I like being here and not down in Fort Collins or some a place where it never drops off. Because when the Right around Thanksgiving or you know November through the to about April is I have a very cushy schedule and um, that's when it's payback because I you could catch me right here in this chair where I, I'm just basically in my underwear I may, maybe I haven't left the house in three days and and uh and that and that is not I mean, that happens a lot where. I'll, it'll be cold and snowy, and the people who do, might want their horses trimmed are saying, "No, don't. Let's do it. Let's do it next week." So I'll just get up, and I and I can really get into that that place, you know, and which is just time, as you, you know, time to read mainly. When the reading life really comes back, then the writing starts to come back. So it's it's lopsided, and right now I don't feel like a poet at all. Yeah. But that's good, though. I mean, because like, I think sometimes people, um, you know, they can get too bogged down if all they're doing is reading and writing and they're too into it and they have nothing else. They're not working any other part of their brain or having any other experiences. Like, it seems healthier. Well, yeah, I, it, but it's scary, right? Because there are times where, well, for instance, when you asked me to, to talk to you, I, I have to tell you, it was the, my first thought was, oh, God, you know, I... I don't feel like a, a writer right now. I feel like uh, some kind of a, a fraud or, you know, like I, I, you know, that my, my immediate feeling, if I'm totally honest, was ah, I just don't even, I'm not, 
I don't, I don't, I don't even know who that other person is. Um, so it's a little scary, but then I've been doing this back and forth long enough that I, I'm, I, I know that when things slow down, I will, I'll get to a spot where it's the opposite. You know, I'm, I, I will be reading, writing, and doing other things, maybe a little traveling and watching films. Like, you know, the other thing is these long, in the winter I can, I love to, to, to watch, uh, you know, a lot of films. That's a big influence, or I, I mean, it's something I enjoy doing that I have no time to do in the summer. And so books, music, all that stuff happens, but it starts in November, huh. somewhere around there. Wow. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and I'm so glad I finally got a chance to talk to you. I feel like I've been trying to get you on the show for a long time, um, and I appreciate you taking you know an hour out of your out of your busy schedule in the summer to to, to speak with me. And I know my listeners are going to be uh, excited to hear from you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been a my pleasure. Okay, there you have it, folks. That's Michael Earl Craig. His new book is called Talkativeness. It's available now from Wave Books. Uh, he does not have an internet presence that I know of, of his own. But, uh, you know, the man only got a personal computer a few years ago, so let's give him some time. <laughs> I'm sure by, like, 2024 he will uh, have a Twitter feed. Uh, but the good news is you can find uh, his book and you can find uh, more information about him over at wavepoetry.com. Wavepoetry.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. The, the uh, free official other people app, the official app of this program. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. Get that thing. It's the easiest way to listen. Uh, you can also sign up for premium and stream the full archives, all 300 episodes. Do that. Get the app. Uh, so what else? Rereading. It's an interesting thing I do. I like to reread books. Like you, there's so many books in the world, you think I would just pick up a new one, but I like to go back to ones that I've already read. What does that say about me? What does it say about me that I forget books that uh, change the course of my existence? <laughs> and Hunter Thompson, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't speak to with too much authority about his addiction. I sort of, uh, I want to kind of like uh, revise myself on that. Or, or maybe I don't. It's so confusing. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he said. But I think he was kind of scared to get sober. Like like most addicts are. You know? Losing that uh, crutch. But then again, you know? It's how he liked to live. It just seems messy. And sad. Because you, know, you just can't write. You can't make art consistently anyway. If you're doing that to yourself. It's amazing he survived as long as he did. So... Uh, anyway, I think that's it. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back. Thanks to Michael Earl Craig. Go get his book. Go get all of his books. Uh, really great poet. And uh, I will be back again soon. Can you hear a little bit? I'm a little bit fatigued. I'm a little bit slow trying to get back into the swing of things. But I will be back uh, soon with another episode of this program, another conversation with another writer. And uh, I think that's it. I'm not going to let my wife take melatonin anymore. I've had enough of that. Yeah.